Good morning, everyone, again. How are we doing with the heat? Everybody okay? See, the fans are going pretty good. If you don't mind turning and directing them my way, that would be fine. Our home congregation meets in a gym. The AC doesn't work that great when it's stuffed with 2,000 people, but fortunately, my wife is usually there to stand beside me, uh, fanning me with palm fronds and wiping my brow with a handkerchief. So sweet. If you believe that, then you've never met Beth. Uh, (laughs) It is a great illustration of inefficiency and individualism that there are at least three of us, maybe four of us, who came here this weekend from Harding University in separate cars. So there's Spencer, there's Austin. I would ask them to stand, but I don't think Austin needs to stand. Uh, (laughs) Did you say Selena is here also? Selena, where are you? You're right here. I don't think we have we met before. We had to come all the way to your home church to meet. So three. Did you come in your own car too? Four cars from Searcy, Arkansas. Um, the good news is, on the way home, I will be able to tell you, the parents, if they're speeding or not, as I fly past them on I-30. It's nice to see the three of you. We'll see you tomorrow. God willing. I love the scene that Patrick read for us from Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. I'd like to read it again, get this in our minds. These images, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Can you just picture these thousands of people milling around there on the Temple Mount? I have to show the next picture, which is the Temple Mount as it looks today, dominated as it is, that plaza by the Dome of the Rock, a Muslim Building, But you can imagine thousands of people milling around, 3,000 of them new devotees of Jesus. Now, they, they didn't think he was Messiah at first, but they changed their opinion. Um, previously, they thought he was just one more pretender. They turned him over to the Romans. They crucified him. But now, based on what they've seen on the day of Pentecost, they believe what Peter says. This man really was a Messiah. We killed him. What shall we do? Peter says, there's salvation even for you. And 3,000 of them accept it, they repent or baptize, receive the gift of the Spirit, and there they are, mixing it up with their fellow Jews that day on the, the Temple Mount, surely with a combination of, of joy. The Messiah has come, and we've waited on him for centuries. Some, I'm sure, wonder as these miraculous things continue to unfold, and as they figure out what this all means, I'm sure there's a good dose of confusion among them, and a whole lot of really serious fellowship going on there. I've sat on that spot many times on the Temple Mount, most recently this past June, and I've wondered, what would it be like to be there? And the more I've thought about it, the more I've thought, I bet it would be very uncomfortable, at least for me. First of all, to be in that group on that early week, that first phase of the early church, I think it would be way more Jewish than I'm expecting. I mean, in chapter 3, the very next paragraph, Peter and John are going up to the temple to pray. In other words, they're still honoring the set times of prayer. This is the afternoon prayer. They probably went there that morning for prayer, and they'll go back that evening for prayer. And I don't know that much about 
ancient Jewish prayer. Somebody's going to have to teach me how to hold my hands up like this. They're going to have to teach me how you bow in the direction of the temple. And before we even do any of that, we're going to have to take these ritual baths in all the baptistries that are at the, the base of the temple mount. You have to ritually purify in those baths before you ascend the steps and go up to the temple mount. I don't know how to do that. My Hebrew's really bad. But all that I could learn and get over it. But I bet for many of us it would be way more Jewish than we think. Secondly, I think I'd be uncomfortable because I think it would be way too communal. I mean, you mean have all things in common? Sell their possessions? Pool their resources? Give to anyone who, who had need? I mean, I get nervous if someone borrows my rake for two days and doesn't bring it back. You know, I write my name on it. Cox, get my rake back. And they're having all things in common here. I've got to admit that as a 21st century American, my individualism gives me a very strong sense of privacy, including a right to private ownership that I didn't even understand I had until I moved to Africa. There I am with a rural tribe of Africans. I've learned this language now. And a typical day, a bunch of guys would show up at my house. We're going to go out to some village, and I would say to them, okay, let me go into my house. And I'll get my Bible and put it in my bag and I'll say goodbye to my wife and my kids and we'll come back out and get in my car. And, you know, I'm saying all this in a, a foreign language, but I'm translating for you, putting all these my's there. Then we'll drive out to my village. Now it's my village because I'm going there. It's my village. We'll get to my village. We'll sit under my tree there in my village. And I'll pull out my Bible and preach my sermon from my Bible to my people in my village at my church. When it's all said and done, we'll get back in my car. We'll drive back to my house and that will be my day. My, 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 my. When the African friends of mine would say it back to me, they would say, okay, why don't you go into the house and get the Bible and put it in the bag and say goodbye to the wife and the kids and come back to the car and we'll go to the village and preach the sermon from the Bible to the people under the tree at the church and then we'll get back in the car and that will be the day. And it didn't even occur to me until I heard them say it, how self-centered that sounds. It's embedded in the English language. The way we speak at all this private ownership, this individualism. It's a hard sell to say, why don't we pool our resources to do anything? When you live in a culture that says your money is your money. I have a friend named Yossi who's usually with me when I'm on the Temple Mount. He's a, an Israeli archaeologist and my partner in doing the tours that we do in Israel. He grew up on a kibbutz. Do you know what a kibbutz is? A commune. Many of the people who founded the state of Israel back beginning more than 100 years ago and up through the 1940s and 50s lived on these communes. They're called, they're called kibbutzes, where they did pool their resources and had all things in common. I love hearing Yossi tell the story of the day his dad came home. His dad was a pilot for El Al, the national Israeli airline. Came home, looked around at the other men who worked the farm at the kibbutz, and he said, I'm tired of this. Those guys are lazy, and I'm tired of handing my paycheck over to them. So no more. And he says, I remember well the day I was a little kid. We moved out of the kibbutz and moved into a condo. And I was so confused and disoriented. Can you imagine if we tried that here? Okay, starting next week, you bring your paycheck, put it in the collection plate. You trust the leadership to redistribute all of our incomes equitably so that no one among us has any need. I'm sorry, that's just way too communal for my taste. So I don't really think I would have felt comfortable in that mix. And then, i got to be honest, it's just way too constant. It's way too 24-7. Every day, in the temple courts and from house to house, 
I'll tell you what I've admitted to you before if you've come on a Friday night, Saturday morning when I've been here, what I've just finally admitted, confessed at my home congregation, they wouldn't have known this, that at home when my elders say, we're going to have a meeting on Friday night, Saturday morning to talk about the future or something like that, inside I just groan. I do. I love God. I love the church. I love those guys, but I'm busy. And when they say, yeah, we're going to spend Friday night and Saturday, we're going to talk and pray about the future, I just groan inside. Man, that eats up more of my time. And there is a part of me that doesn't mind so much when we think of church as an event we attend on Sunday morning. Now, admittedly, that's the ugly, secular, individualistic, selfish part of me that doesn't mind that so much. The other part of me that really wants to practice the way of Jesus, that really wants to know what real fellowship is, he's embarrassed by the other guy. But the other guy's still in there. Mark Scandrick wrote a book that I just read this year called Practicing the Way of Jesus. And reading that book made me think again about how much of what we do is culture-driven and is in need of a critique, including how we define fellowship. If we're going to be a spirit-guided, spirit-filled, spirit-prompted, spirit-led church engaging in spirit-compelled fellowship, we're going to have to rethink some things. He suggests three. Number one, we're going to have to redefine what we mean by participation. Now, you may pat yourself on the back, and I'm glad you came. You pat yourself on the back because you showed up this morning. You get participation points, and that's the extent of your participation in the life and work of this church. Mark Scandrick would say, and I would agree, we have got to move from being spectators to being real participants. Which means we're going to have to overcome this uh, orientation where we think of the assembly on Sunday mornings as sort of a performance. And when we get in the car, basically what we do is we critique the performance that morning. What did you think of the sermon? Well, he talked a little fast, or talked too loud, or... I couldn't hear him. The mic wasn't quite right. So we critique the AV guy. Sorry, Nathan. We critique the song leader, or we critique the songs, or we critique, 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 because it's a performance that we critique. And for some of us, that's to some extent of what church is all about. It's a performance that we critique. Now, if you get in the car this morning and you say, what would you think of church today? (laughs) Don't think that I think that you're being sinful. But if that's all this is to you, a performance that you critique, then we've missed the point somewhere. Haven't we? Dallas Willard has some pretty strong words for such thinking. He says, among other things, that one of the greatest spiritual barriers to spiritual transformation among contemporary North American Christians, and that's a lot to say, one of the greatest obstacles to our spiritual transformation is investing too much time and energy in the Sunday morning worship service thinking this is where most spiritual transformation happens. That can happen, but it's going to require a whole lot more than just this for us to experience the true spiritual transformation that the Spirit of God desires to to bring in us. But we pour so much time and energy in it, and rightly so, You ought to expect your preacher to stand here well prepared. You ought to expect the the person who leads the songs to have thought them through. Which songs fit the theme of the day? You ought to expect the person who led the Lord's Supper comments as our brother did today to have thought about it and come prepared and not ramble. We ought to invest some time and energy in what we do in this hour. 
But I believe he's right when he reminds us that we don't worship worship. We didn't come here to worship worship. Like what he says, truth is that from the only point of view that really matters, which is God's, it's very likely that no human will ever know how the service went. You have to ask him one day. There's some reason to believe that there is a younger generation that's already on to this. That's already aware, sensitive to the energy, the time that we invest in a Sunday morning assembly over and against time and energy and money we could have invested in some other way. Not that they would say, disband the Sunday morning assembly. I'm thinking of a book by David Kenneman. I've talked about it here before where he is responding to a very troubling trend among us, not just among us, but among people who grew up in churches of all kinds, that between the ages of 18 and 29, those people who self-identified as churchgoers are now saying they don't go in larger and larger numbers. About half of them are no longer attending. And if you ask them why, they'll, they'll give you this list. Number one on the list is the perception that church is too, and I don't remember the list, so I'll have to read it here, overprotective. It was as if all you were trying to do was shield us from the world out there rather than equip us for the world out there. Number two, they perceived that church was too shallow. You were more interested in talking big and having an impressive, flashy service than you were about making disciples one-on-two, one-on-three, two-on-four. That's where you should have spent your resources. It was too anti-science. It was too repressive, especially when it comes to matters of sexuality. It was too exclusive eliminated too many people, and finally it was too doubtless. Your church was not a place where we felt safe to express our doubt. Back to that second one, too shallow. Maybe they're picking up on what Dallas Willard's picking up on. If we put all our eggs in this basket, as if the whole future of our church is dependent on what happens in this assembly, the worship assembly, this is the key to our spiritual transformation as people then that emphasis is, I believe, misplaced. And yes, there is another side of the coin, Dallas Willard. On the other side of the coin, I would say, it's also a valuable thing to assemble with the saints and those who are so disenchanted with it that they start forsaking it are uh, missing a spiritual resource. Seems like I've read a line about that somewhere too, about forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Bottom line is, we've got to redefine what it means to participate and to sit and spectate as an audience member in a performance is not participation. Number two, we've got to redefine what we mean when we use the word community. Or where we throw around carelessly these days, but when I read Acts 2, 42 to 47, I mean, that scene sets the bar very high for what community looks like. Scandrit would say, we've got to move from being passive consumers to being committed contributors in this fellowship. It's going to be a spirit-driven fellowship. It's very hard for us to overcome that consumer mentality in a culture that says the consumer is always right. People in our culture even think that's somewhere in the Bible. The consumer is always right. That individualism I spoke of earlier drives that consumerism. Kroger is here to meet my needs. Or whatever place you shop, they're there to meet your needs. So the customer is always right. We are here to do more than meet your needs. This isn't all about meeting the needs of the consumer. Sometimes we forget about that. If that's what you came for today. 
and something that's said today, something that's sung today, something that's prayed today somehow scratches an itch. You get your need met. Well, congratulations, your need's met. It's not like we don't care at all about meeting needs. But if you came like a passive consumer sitting there waiting to see if you got a need met, then you came with the wrong motive, the wrong intention, at least some of the time. And it's probably feeding that same spirit of passiveness and individualism that allows you to sit there like a consumer and not contribute anything and maintain all the while your carefully calibrated distance. The Dallas Willard line. Your carefully calibrated distance. Hi, how are you doing? Fine, thanks. How are you? Good, good, good. And you maintain this distance that you've put there on purpose and you maintain it because you want to be anonymous. For all your talk about how we wish it was this way and we wish it was... You want to be anonymous, some of you, don't you? Somehow, if that's you, somehow you're going to have to look deep within and find the spiritual resources to come up with the humility and the courage that it takes to be known. You're going to have to look deep within and find the spiritual resources to find the, the humility and the courage it takes to be known. To say, this is who I am. This is what we're going through at home. This is what we're facing. Help me. Yeah, I came with a need, and you wouldn't have known about it if I maintained that carefully calibrated distance. Another image I may have mentioned to you before from 1 Peter chapter 2 comes to mind. 1 Peter 2, 4, Peter writes, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but uh, chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. goes on to talk about Christ is the cornerstone there. But the image, this word picture, I think is great. Show that first picture. The one on the left, the spiritual altar, that it's being built so it all fits Here is you with your gift set, and we're chiseling here, we're chiseling there. And here comes somebody else with their gift set, and we're chiseling here, we're chiseling there, trying to fit this whole thing together. It requires some work. It requires some intentionality. And I guarantee it requires more than your attendance at a performance one hour a week. But if you're content with a performance one hour a week, then you're probably drawn to the second picture to the right. That's called pile of rocks not an altar. Now we can dump the rocks in the same place three times a week and feel good about it. But it's still called pile of rocks. Altar takes more work and that's why some of us don't like it. I was thinking of this consumer mentality in the conversation with Patrick Mead. Do you know who Patrick Mead is? Patrick was talking about a disgruntled member of theirs who was also a good giver apparently. So after a three-week absence, the elders decided, we better chase that guy down and find out what hurt his feelings, why he stopped coming. So they do. Like we elders dutifully do, we chase him down. They went and visited, and Patrick wasn't even there. He was the preacher at that church at the time. But Patrick said, well, I'll tell you what I would have told him. (laughs) I don't know if Patrick actually would have told him this or not. But he said, I hope what they said when they went was, brother, I wonder what ministries of our congregation have suffered these past three weeks while you've sat here with your feelings hurt, mad at us because of something we did. 
I wonder what's missing in our congregation because you weren't there to tend to it. That's what we should have told him. That just scares us to death, those of us who are in leadership. So we cater to the consumer mentality, trying to keep everybody happy, and we get just completely handcuffed and stymied by the fear of displeasing anybody, as if that's what we were called to do. Which leads to redefinition number three. We've got to redefine what it means to participate. We've got to redefine what community really is all about. And we've got to redefine what it means to lead. It can't be that we are service providers, we who are leaders. We're providing a service. How can we provide better service? We're not called on to be service providers. We're called on to be shepherds. To shepherd the the flock forward and outward and onward. And that's going to call us to be better coaches, more like mentors, and shall I dare say shepherds, than service providers. And it begins when we, who are leaders, recommit ourselves. We are going to apprentice ourselves to Jesus. We are going to be his disciples first and foremost, and then we are going to invite others to follow us and imitate us as we seek to imitate him. It starts with us. There's another scene back in Acts two chapters later, that sounds very much like the first one. This one is in Acts 4, beginning in verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed distributed to anyone as he had need. Very much like Acts 2, 42 to 47, with one difference. This scene comes on the heels of the first outbreak of persecution. When Peter and John approach that lame man in Acts 3 and Jesus heals him through them. They get called on the carpet for it. They're hauled before the Sanhedrin, thrown into jail. Sanhedrin doesn't know what to do, so they demand that they no longer speak in this name. Stop using this name, Jesus. They send them back, and when they do, they gather with the saints in spirit-led fellowship. They lift up their voices in prayer in Acts 4, verse 23, going back before the paragraph that I read. And they say, among other things, Sovereign Lord, verse 24, You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. It goes on, but then I skip to verse 29 in their prayer. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Consider their threats and now enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. I just have the feeling if it were us, if it were me, I'd be sitting there praying after this moment of persecution and I'd be saying, please, Lord, make it stop. This hurts. Make it stop. And they pray instead, in light of these threats, would you please empower us to speak your word with greater boldness? Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Check. Done. Prayer answered. There's something about hardship that makes fellowship more sweet. Isn't there? 
I don't remember the name of the couple who's suffering this morning because they lost their daughter. Oh, such pain. Such pain. If you're here, my heart goes out to you. All of our hearts ache for you. Some of you have lost children, adult children, small children. Some of you have suffered loss. Some of you sit here as widows and widowers. And church is one of the worst experiences because you sit here and you think of him. You sit here and you sing her favorite song and you can't help but think of her. This is all very painful and our hearts ache for you, but there's something about fellowship that makes the hardships at least bearable, doesn't it? How many times I've heard people say, I don't know what I'd do without my church family. I don't know what I'd do without the body of Christ, and that's as it should be. The real fellowship we seek is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. You and I individually connected to the Spirit of God who indwells us, and all of us collectively sharing together the the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within us. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It's a phrase that's used at least twice. It's once in Philippians 2. One, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any tenderness and compassion, if any fellowship of the Holy Spirit, then make my joy complete and so forth. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the very last verse of 2 Corinthians, sometimes we conclude with an assembly. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. But what is that? From 1 Corinthians chapter 12, a passage that doesn't actually use that phrase, fellowship of the Holy Spirit, but it's got fellowship of the Holy Spirit all over it. Come these lines from the Apostle Paul, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 12. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. The spirit of God, power aid for the body of Christ, coursing through the veins of this church this morning. But there you sit, dry as a bone. Maybe some of you. Maybe you feel that. I can't tell, but maybe you feel that way. And you wonder why. But somebody next to you is drinking the living water of God. Could it be that if you were just a little more connected to them, that some of that might just splash on you and you would walk out this morning instead of just feeling so burdened by the burden you brought with you, just put it back up on your shoulders and carry it home, that you could unload that burden at least for a while? You could draw strength from the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that is a spiritual resource that surrounds you this morning. But there you sit, determined to keep that tourniquet on. Got that tourniquet on that's shutting off the Spirit of God from having any influence in your life. Preventing the Spirit of God that dwells in these other folks from having any impact on you. Maintaining that carefully calibrated distance. Maybe because you're afraid if they really knew me, they wouldn't like me much. If they really saw into my life, they would see how weak I am, how small my faith is. Maybe it's fear that holds you back. Whatever it is, if you want to be part of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, you've got to take the tourniquet off. You've got to take it off. You've got to do it now. Like right now. Some elders are going to be standing here, ready to help you pull it apart, untie the knot, take it off of that, you, our beloved body part, take it off that body part, so that you could begin to absorb the living water that is the Spirit of God that that desires to fill this church. If you find within the humility 
and the courage to be known. Take off the tourniquet. Take it off. Do it right now. Let's stand and sing. I am mine no more. I am mine.